English teachers rock. I had the privilege of speaking with a middle school English teacher today, and what an enjoyable conversation we had. We talked about the usual, you know, the journey, obstacles, and the magic wand, of course. But we also talked a lot about reading and reading instruction, the role of English teachers in today's classrooms as critical practitioners and providers of culturally responsive instruction. Sometimes it feels like everything falls on the English teacher's plate. Anything that's going on in the world, English teachers feel the responsibility to bring that to their students so that they're informed about a lot of the current events. So our guest today shares how she navigates the complex responsibilities of an English teacher. Enjoy the episode and do share your thoughts, comments, reactions, and feedback at turnandtalkpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Turn and Talk podcast where educators take the mic back and speak their truth without filter. I interview teachers and school personnel and ask them to share their views and experiences about education anonymously. If you work in a school setting or have worked in one and have something to say about education, please email me at turnandtalkpodcast at gmail.com because I'd love for you to take the mic back and add your voice to the conversation about public education. Subscribe, share, and enjoy the show. Hi everyone, our guest today is an English teacher. She teaches middle school English and is here to take the mic and share her perspectives and experience with us on all things education. Very happy to have you here. Glad to have you on the show. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Jay. I'm excited to talk about teaching and learning and I just could do it all day. So let's do it. <laughs> yes, let's do it. So why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about what you do, what kind of setting do you teach in and what do you teach and who do you teach? Okay. Uh, well, I have been teaching for um, 11 years and the past eight years, I've been um, at a six through 12 private school um, and I teach uh, sixth grade English there before before I was at the private school, I was in a public school in Topeka, Kansas, and before that in a public school in Portland, Oregon. So making the shift over to a private school was a really weighty decision that I had to sit with for a while. But now I've made that leap into uh, private education, and I love it. It is a dream job for me. Um, the school I'm in is pretty small, but getting bigger. So I have the advantage of small class sizes, but we're growing and getting more diverse, which brings lots of exciting challenges and opportunities for us. What was so hard for you in making that decision? Well, I got my master's in education after deciding when I was about 27 that I actually wanted to be a teacher. Um, now my mom would tell you that she knew all along I would be a teacher. I of course resisted that. And I got my undergrad in sociology thinking I'd go on to graduate school and maybe pursue a PhD and do research. But then I started volunteering in an after school program and taught a little boy how to read and it just changed my life. And wow. I decided that, you know, if this is something I can do every day, I want to pursue it. So I got my master's in Portland, Oregon. And uh, the school I went to was very focused on a social justice pedagogy and coming from a background in sociology where I looked a lot at inequality in our society. I knew I wanted to be in a public school and kind of be on the ground floor of writing wrongs as much as I could. And so I worked in uh, low income schools for a couple of years. And, you know, obviously, it was very, very challenging, but incredibly fulfilling and beautiful and maddening all at the same time. And then I moved to the middle of the country in Kansas and got a job in a public school teaching seventh grade English. And it was devastating because it was the type of school that said, okay, you need to be on the same page the same day in your curriculum as all the other seventh grade English teachers. And uh, to I me, that's that. not that's not what teaching is. You know, I don't teach a subject. I teach students. And when they're telling me that I need to be on the same page as everyone else, that's not fair to the students. So I, uh, when I, when I was teaching in that school, I had 33 students in my class and there were 18 of them had IEPs or 504s. 
And next door was a wonderful teacher who had 17 students in her class and 12 of them were gifted, yet we were supposed to be doing the same thing at the same time. And it was unfair to both students, um, to both, you know, groups of students in our classes. So I resisted as much as possible and I was called into the district office because I was not following directions, basically. And, you know, I, I stood my ground and did what was best for my students, but I knew that that was a school that I wouldn't be able to thrive in or do work that I knew was important to do for the students. Um, so a position came open at the private school um, in the town I live in, and I applied for it. And I mean, the biggest change is just having academic freedom where I can decide what my students need and I can decide what books we read. And that's been just a game changer as far as helping me deepen my practice and be incredibly responsive to students. So do you feel that the curriculum should be in the hands of the teacher as opposed to you know, the opposite, the far end of the opposite, which would would be district mandated or school mandated top-down curriculum? I do, um, to an extent. I mean, I think there is good curriculum out there. And the problem is when the curriculum becomes so scripted and so exclusive to everything else the teacher can bring to the table, I think it robs us of our dignity as professionals. And so, you know, in an ideal world, I think there would be a balance of having a solid curriculum, but also letting teachers have freedom to, you know, look at their students from year to year and say, you know what, this book is not going to be the right match for this particular group of students, but here's another book we can use. So I think having that flexibility is incredibly important. You know, obviously in American society, teachers are not well respected um, and it seems to be we're moving in a direction of teachers are robots and anyone can be a teacher and here's the curriculum and you know that's devastating so for me to be able to work in a school where I get respect and trust and freedom has just made me an incredibly more gifted and talented teacher because I have this time and space to develop what I think is best for students. Yeah, I also wanted to pick your brain about what is best for students in an English class in a middle school. So can you tell us a little bit about what your class is like and what is teaching English in middle school like? Um, You know, it's wild and crazy and sometimes it's smelly (laughs) because they're middle schoolers. But I'm really lucky in that I get to see my students twice a day. So that gives us a lot of time to devote energy and practice to reading and writing. Um, I think sometimes what happens in an English class is the writing instruction comes second to reading. And in part, I think that's because of standardized testing and the emphasis is on reading. But in my class, I'm really lucky that I, I get to see them twice a day. So I try to, first of all, see them as individuals. So get to know them and get a feel for, you know, what do they want to pursue and what do they want to explore this year and what are their interests and then also helping them to see like this symbiotic relationship between reading and writing so in the beginning of the year we do a lot of reading short stories and so we talk about the the book the novel or the short story and then I say how did the author get you to really really like this protagonist what did the author do here do you see how the author is using dialogue. Let's take a look at how they did that. And then when my students turn around to write, then they can start to use those tools that they've thought about and they've explored when they were reading. So I try to show them that they are readers, but I want them to read like a writer. And I want them to see themselves as writers and to write like a reader. So they kind of see both sides of the reading and writing relationship. They also participate in National Novel Writing Month in November. And they choose a word count goal between 6,000 and I had one student write 42,000 words in 30 days. 
and they choose, you know, they develop a character, they throw the character into conflict, and then November 1st at midnight, um, I tell them they can set their alarm if they want to wake up at midnight and start writing. They can start writing, and then we have 30 (laughs) days. Yeah, it's really, you know, and it's like Halloween, (laughs) so, you know, they're all pumped up on sugar anyway. And so we devote time in class to write and practice, you know, those typically super boring uh, grammar skills. But when I say to them, like, oh, check this out, watch what happens when you use a dash in your dialogue and you want to interrupt your character. What, you know, what does that do for your characters or for this conversation? And they get into it because they're applying it to a novel that they're writing. So it's a really, that's obviously a big part of my class is the students Mm -hmm. writing novels during that time. Um, And then they publish them in December and January and they go on like the real Amazon and, you know, great aunt Sue and Minnesota can buy their novel on Amazon, which is pretty special. (laughs) Wow. That is so cool. It's amazing. It's an amazing project that every year I kind of hold my breath until November 15th because I'm like, they're going to mutiny. This is it. They're not going to do it. They're going (laughs) to revolt. No one's going to bring their iPad and type any words today. And then November 15th comes and they're still into it and they have new problems for their characters. And it's just, it's a really, it's a really intense and beautiful project. So in November, then if we walked into your classroom, it would be mostly like kids writing, 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 and you just working with as many of them as possible to help them and coach them? Yeah. So, um, you know, because I have those two class periods, often the first class period that I meet with them, I will show them mentor texts or just read aloud to them or show them a specific skill, like how to use a subordinating conjunction, for example. Uh, And then in the second class period, we will apply that skill that I've introduced to them. They'll apply it to their writing. So if you come by in November, you'll see them Some days they're just writing individually and I'm conferencing with them one-on-one. Some days they'll be doing peer reading. So they'll pair up uh, with someone in their group and they'll read their writing out loud to each other because, I mean, I'm sure you know when you write something and then you read it out loud, sometimes it sounds a little differently than you wanted it to. Oh yeah. Um, so it's important for them to get in the habit of just reading their writing out loud and they catch silly mistakes and then they get feedback from, you know, a peer who's that's their target audience. So it's it's really cool to see them like authentically engage with their classmates writing, you know, to see them like laughing. I had this group of boys one year and they were reading, you know, they share their novel with each other the whole month. So they're like intimate with the characters, right? They know each other's characters very well. And um, something sad happened to one of the characters and this other boy was like, wow, that that really makes me want to cry, you know, and just for that author to be like, yes, I nailed it. You know, I made the reader have an emotional reaction to what I wrote. It's just such a cool boost for them to see their writing have, have an impact. That sounds like something that also helps children develop their identity as writers. And Mm -hmm. so many students that I see in my classrooms often come not believing that they can write or they are writers. Yeah, absolutely. I spend a lot of time the beginning of the year of getting them just to see that they have something to say. And so I try to just demystify writing and make it like, hey, this is a low pressure environment. We're all experimenting, which means that I write and I share my writing with them. And sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going to think this is so funny. And then I read it to them and it's like crickets and it's very <laughs> awkward. And, but it's a good experience for them to see like, oh, my teacher tried and she totally failed. <laughs> yeah, well, you said reading and writing are symbiotic. We can't talk about writing without, I guess, you you know, in a way, talking about reading as well. A lot of students, at least there's a perception that there's an increase in the number of struggling readers over the years. Why is that, that so many students or children are uh, struggling to learn to read? Then second, how do we get kids to read who don't feel or think that they like to read? Well, I mean, I think I would personally say that there's probably a correlation between our increase on standardized testing and a decrease in students who see themselves as readers or who are strong readers. I think standardized testing um, takes away 
that power from the teacher to introduce passionate reading to their students, either because they just don't have the resources for it because they're given this scripted curriculum, or they don't have the time to cover everything they're supposed to cover and bring in authentic things from their lives as readers. So I think that has to do with it is just how reading is taught and perceived in in elementary school. And then as far as what I do about it, you know, like I said before, I'm very blessed to have a lot of freedom. And so I try to pick books that my students will be able to relate to. I did this year for the first time, um, Ellen O uh, edited a collection called Flying Lessons. Yes, and I it's, read it. Oh, it's so good. There's yes, so many is. good stories in there. And, and the authors um, are very diverse. Yes, yeah. So Eleanor was one of the the founders of We Need Diverse Books. And as I said before, our school's getting more diverse and I want students to see themselves reflected in what we're reading. And so bringing that short story collection in was good because a lot of students connected to stories in that collection that they wouldn't have been exposed to if I didn't bring it in. I had one student, um, his mom just emailed me this weekend and she said, you know, I just have to tell you that my son read the book Small Steps by Peg Carrot, which is an older book, but it's about her experience getting polio as a child. Mm -hmm. And you think like, you know, polio, like, you know, that hardly exists in the world anymore. Why would kids care? But the way she deals with this adversity in her life really speaks to kids. And they're just fascinated by, you know, this 12 year old being afflicted with this literally crippling disease. But she said, the mom emailed me and said, you know, my son read this. I'd, normally I have to badger him to read his books, but he would get in the car every day, get out his iPad, open up Kindle and just start reading. And she was like, so thank you. Thank you for bringing that book to him. And just That's having, awesome. yeah, I mean, just having kids have that experience, then we build on that right? And we like keep that momentum going. Um, And of course you sneak in all the skills along the way, right? Of like learning how to make an inference or character analysis. But I try to do it in a vehicle that kids can relate to and feel passionate about. That's a great thing you mentioned. Also, I wanted to ask you about different camps in in reading teachers uh, as well that I find, you know, there are some people who talk about the strategy teaching as Mm -hmm. problematic. uh, Mm -hmm. And some people feel that that can have the effect of driving out joy from reading. And when I say strategy, just for the audience, uh, when I say strategy based reading instruction, I'm referring to, you know, reading something and trying to find the main idea, what's it mostly about, or looking for lines that support a particular point within a reading. And some people share that that can, you know, get kids pretty frustrated or or get the joy out of the reading. How do you feel about that? You know, I think the first thing I think about when I'm um, deciding what to teach is what what are my students going to connect to, right? And then from that, we have discussions in class. So a lot of the class is based on discussions about what's happening in the story or what's happening in the novel. And then I mean, I try to think about it like in sort of a, like I am sneaky in that as we're having a conversation about a character, you know, I'm secretly teaching them how to do a character analysis, right? But we're really just talking about what we like about the character, what we don't like, and why don't we like that she just made that decision? Or why do we not like her best friends? And really they're doing a character analysis, but we're doing an in a way that's, you know, we're having a conversation, we're having a discussion. And so I think it's, you know, you want to teach them to love and enjoy reading, but you also need to teach them how to be a critical reader. So, you know, both of those things are happening in the classroom. That's an um, interesting point because I, I'm thinking if you read without engaging in text in a text in, in a variety of ways like that, that push your thinking or force you to look at a piece of the story or writing in a different way, then reading can sometimes be less than active activity. You know, I don't mm-hmm. want to call it passive because it's never passive, but right. it can be even more active. Like your critical juices can be flowing more when you ask the right questions about the book. So 
I get your mm-hmm. point. Yeah. It's teaching reading is something that I'm working on. I feel like my strength lies with uh, writing and helping kids boost their skills as far as the written word, but I'm learning more and more about how to be a better reading teacher, especially at, you know, I'm at a college prep school and students start reading like for real Shakespeare in seventh grade. So in sixth grade, I'm, you know, I have to be a strong reading teacher. And it's something I'm working on all the time because I want them to to have those skills to be able to do, you know, college level reading, but I, I want it to be in a fun, engaging way because they'll get it, you know, it'll stick with them. Yeah. Speaking of that, you also mentioned your students using iPads. Where, where do mm-hmm. you see the role of, or how do you see the role of technology playing out in the middle school classroom? Well, you know, there's a love-hate relationship with the iPad, right? So it's obviously great for National Novel Writing Month because they all have their iPads. They all write on Google Docs. I can get on and give them real-time feedback on their writing. Um, The first year I did NaNoWriMo, uh, the students were writing in notebooks, and I'm very proud of them for their diligence uh, with that. But that was hard for me and for them as a teacher and as a learner because I would have to collect their notebooks and take them home and read them and put sticky notes all over them. In that time that I had their notebook, they weren't able to write. Um, So one great thing with the iPad, obviously, is they have it with them all the time, right? They can write anywhere. They can read anywhere they have their iPad. As far as reading goes... When we first got the iPads five years ago, all of the texts we read were on the iPad. Now, in my class, it's about half of the texts are on the iPad. And I think next year, I might make it zero. You know, reading on an iPad is very different than reading, you know, a book that you hold in your hands. Mm -hmm. And I have some students who, when I tell them, okay, you know, open up your Kindle app, let's download this book. They're like, can I just buy it? Can I buy a hard copy? Um, <laughs> because they prefer it. And as far as a teacher, I do too. Who, yeah, I, I do too. You know, I'm reading with them and I'm like, okay, I'm on page 44 and I'm looking at my paper copy and they're on like, I'm location 4092. <laughs> you know, that. it's like, yeah. oh my gosh, it's so annoying. So little things like that are, are frustrating with the iPad. But also, you know, I teach them how to annotate. And yes, you can highlight and make a note in Kindle. But just having them write in the book and underline and highlight and make a note and put a sticky note next to something that made them react is, I think that that kinesthetic activity is really important. Yeah, and I would also argue, based on my personal experience, someone needs to do this feature. I'm sure it already exists somewhere maybe, but if it doesn't, they should look into it. I think we are more likely to annotate when it's a physical copy of the book mm-hmm. than, than electronically because I, I that's what I do. I, I end up writing handwriting writing more in a, in a physical book than I ever annotate in an ebook. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, one more thing about homework in the reading classroom or the English classroom, right? So what, what's your, do you believe in homework? What's your philosophy? Teachers are all over the place with this one too. Yeah. Um, I think in elementary school, I don't like the idea of homework. You know, I think kids need to be kids. They need to go home after school. They need to do a recreational activity where they really do kind of recreate themselves a little bit, right? And whatever that is, if it's like playing with Legos, running outside, or reading a book for fun, I totally support that in elementary school. In middle school, I think homework has a place, um, but it shouldn't dominate their time outside of school. So as far as reading goes, I am pretty conscientious about the reading rate of my students and their after-school schedule. You know, when it's basketball season, a lot of my students play basketball. And if they go play a game an hour away and they're not going to get home till nine o'clock, am I going to assign 30 pages for them to read? No, because that's unreasonable. You know, they're 11 years old. 
Right. Um, so they do have a reading schedule that we will stick to. Some students, of course, I know we all have these kids in our class who we say, okay, read the first two chapters tonight, and they come back and have finished the whole book, right? We, I have some of those students, and I have some kids who, like, just barely finish that last page of chapter two. Yeah. Um, so they do have reading homework outside of class, but I try to make it a manageable amount for them. And then, you know, one thing I want to do more with is independent reading. So I'm really interested in exploring more about how to have an independent reading project um, where students can choose what they want to read and I can check in with them about their reading, but not in a way that's cumbersome to them or to me. Because I want them to, you know, see themselves as a reader and find the genres that they like and find the authors that they like, because that's a lifelong reader, right? Someone who knows what they like. Yes. So that's always kind of in the back of my mind is how to make a better independent reading program. Today is MLK Day, mm-hmm. and many teachers struggle with figuring out how to keep different issues of social justice alive in the classroom all year as opposed to just on holidays. Mm-hmm. So how do you tackle this issue of, you know, picking the right stuff for the, in the curriculum that brings awareness to children about stories that are not told very often in our more traditional curriculum? Yeah, so, you know, first it starts with what we choose to read. So their summer reading is the Flying Lessons book because it's all diverse authors. And the topics that those authors talk about in those short stories, some of them are familiar to my students. And some of them are, some of the topics are completely unfamiliar to my students. So it's, you know, there's a lot of talk in education right now about books being doors and windows. And so I, I thought a lot about that this summer when I chose that flying lessons book is I, I want this book to be a door and a window to my students. So that was the first, you know, that's kind of the first piece that students are exposed to in my classroom as as far as diversity goes. And then as we go through the year, we do some scary stories, which is purely just to talk about how to write suspense and that kind of thing. The students do their novels and whatever they decide to do with their novel, I support them in in whatever idea they have, whatever they want their character to do. And, you know, I think in some regards, that's an act of social justice of just saying yes to kids. I think a lot of times kids hear, no, you can't do that. You can't say that. And in that whole, you know, in all of November, December, I just say, yes, do it. Absolutely. I'm going to empower you to do this. Or you maybe you need to research this a little bit more and let's do that together and add that into your novel. Now, my like most favorite book to teach is called Claudette Colvin, Twice Toward Justice by Philip Hoos. And it's about Claudette Colvin, who was a 15-year-old girl who refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, mm-hmm. nine months before Rosa Parks did. And everyone's like, wait a minute. Claudette Colvin, wait, no, this is all about Rosa Parks. Like, she's the amazing one. And I'm like, let's put the brakes on for a second. And so when we do that unit, it's all about looking at the thousands of people who are part of the civil rights movement and not just the heroes, right? Everyone knows Rosa Parks and everyone knows MLK, but they don't think about like the thousands of people who boycotted buses for a year. You know, it's like, I I just like to blow their minds with that because then what they start to think about is, wait a minute, if I didn't get the whole story here, what else am I missing? You know, what else are my history textbooks not telling me? And as, you know, that sociologist inside of me, I'm like, yes, that is a great question. And I want you to keep asking it for the rest of your life. Um, and so that unit is really powerful for the students and the conversations that come out of that are pretty intense. I know students go home and sit around the dinner table and ask their parents questions about like, Hey, like, why were all the kids white in my elementary school? Or why are all of our neighbors white? You know, those are really hard questions 
to answer, um, but I like to get down in that muck with them and then show them, here's what people are doing to make a more just society. Another thing I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, really since the book Wonder came out, this idea of kindness, you know, and kindness is cool and, you know, the t-shirts and the bumper stickers, but also now thinking about kindness without justice, it's just nice, right? Right, right? And so I'm trying to think about how can I take this momentum of be kind, be kind, and like put a social justice spin on it. So yes, let's be kind. And the way we're going to be kind is make sure we have an, a more just society. And so I've been, you know, thinking about that in the back of my mind a little bit this year. Um, but I also think about justice, not just in terms of, you know, economic justice or racial justice, but, you know, one of the reasons I do that small steps book about the girl with polio is because, you know, she had a disability. And so looking at disability rights, I worked uh, in a special education education classroom for a number of years before I went to graduate school. And so I also have that piece of, of, you know, disability rights and, and advocating for people with disabilities and also just seeing people with disabilities as people. So I've been thinking a lot about that as well. And I also have a heart for the older people. And Mm -hmm. so one year we did a personal narrative unit where I took the students to a local retirement community and they interviewed residents there about their life and their childhood. And my students went back to the classroom and wrote, you know, a personal narrative on this person. And then we came back and shared that with them. So just having this intergenerational relationship I think is really, is really beautiful. And, and, you know, in the United States, families don't all live together, right? Like in other cultures where it's completely normal and expected for, you know, three generations to be living together. Um, And I think we've gotten away from that in this country. And so this was the way to, to reconnect um, across those generations. Yeah, what a great way to think about the pros and cons of the ever-changing family dynamics. Mm-hmm. Do you think teaching is harder now than it has been in decades past? I think people are probably more vocal than they used to be um, as far as voicing different opinions. The classrooms are more diverse than I think they have been before, you know, especially, I mean, Schools are, you know, there is a move towards the resegregation of schools, but there is still diversity in schools. And I think that's evident during class discussions. And that puts teachers in a place where they don't want to indoctrinate the students, right? They don't want the students to think what they think. But at the same time, they can't let hurtful or wrong um, or factually inaccurate information go out without combating it, right? So the town I live in is really progressive. It's a college town, um, and we're pretty liberal, especially for being in Kansas. Um, But there are conservative families in our school, and the day after... The election when Trump got elected, I cried in front of my students because I was devastated about what could happen. And that maybe was inappropriate, but that was an honest reaction I was having. And other students were very upset. And we decided to mobilize and help the immigrant community because that's who we were worried about. And so, you know, looking back on that, I think like, oh, you know, was that wrong? of me as a teacher to react that way. And I don't know. I don't know if it was wrong or not, but that's, that was an intense moment that happened that maybe wouldn't have happened in the past. Yeah. yeah, That's, that's so true. You know, we always hear that the classroom should not be a place where your political views Mm -hmm. or your religious views should enter. And at the same time, those tend to be big parts of people's identities and, Mm -hmm. um, when changes in those or affect those identities, then it's very hard to just not be a human in right. front of the children that you spend so much time with. I think the most important part is just to get kids asking questions and whatever answers they find or their family brings up, 
you know, that's great. Those are their answers, but they need to be asking questions. And I think that's a major role of an educator is to get them to ask questions. Great. Thank you. Let's shift a little bit to just general teaching and education and outside of just the classroom for a bit. How do you think your perspective on public education or just school education in general has uh, evolved over over the years? Has it changed at all? Yeah, I feel super bummed out about public education right now. Um, my older son is in kindergarten right now and he's at a Montessori school. And so we're trying to decide where's he going to go next year. And I wish I could just say, of course, he's going to go to the public school. But my experience with public education is not positive. Um, and in part, that's because of the way teachers are trained. I don't think um, teachers are given adequate or meaningful training to be in the classroom. Um, in Oregon, you have to have your master's degree to teach, which that's really intense. Um, that's a lot of training. And, um, you know, to get an advanced degree, and it's hard, but I think that's important. And I, I wish teachers had, I wish the teacher ed preparation programs were better and created stronger teachers who walked into the classroom with skills rather than being forced to kind of learn on the fly. And you don't really get a grace period because kids are there, <laughs> right. right? You don't get a like, oh, I'll just coast for a little bit. Like, no, they're there in your life all day. So I wish education uh, preparation was better. Teacher education uh, was better. And, you know, like I said before, I wish that fundamentally teachers had more respect and had more trust from administrators, but also from school districts. And at the national level, obviously, there's a lot of turmoil happening as far as what direction is public education going to go in our country. And so I just, I feel really bummed out about it. And I'm not sure what the solution is. Uh, sometimes I think maybe I'll go back into the public education classroom, go back into a public, uh, public school, but it just it just feels like I would be working against this giant machine that would eat me up. And that's a really sad feeling to think about teachers in that way. Yeah. Do you think that some of the things that you're talking about are the reasons why many teachers end up leaving the profession? hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, so many teachers are not prepared. And then if they don't have a meaningful support system in that school and they're not making a lot of money, of course they're going to leave. I think also teachers think maybe teaching will be one thing and they get into the classroom and they're like, oh my gosh, I have all of these like bureaucratic hoops to jump through and all of these meetings to go to that are not about the kids and not about making me a better teacher, but just having the bureaucracy machine keep working. And, you know, I think teacher turnover is a real problem. I think if teachers were paid more, that would help retain people. But also just, I mean, again, going back to that idea of trusting teachers to be intellectuals and creative problem solvers and attuned with what their students need, you know, I just wish that we trusted teachers more because I think we would retain better teachers for longer. What do you think about, you know, the teacher evaluation systems and stuff lately, especially in the public school side of things? There are, there have been many different ways people have been trying to value teachers to value their performance. So in your ideal scenario, if you were to paint one, what would it look like to evaluate a teacher's performance? Would you even have an evaluation for a teacher or would you do conceive of it in a different way? Well, I think it'd be really cool if 
there were administrators in every school who were assigned a handful of teachers and that administrator would work with those teachers regularly and ongoing all year. So it's not just, I'm going to pop in your classroom twice a year, observe one lesson and, you know, write up my notes and we'll debrief and set some goals, you know, but having it be like, okay, every other Tuesday, I'm going to come in, I'm going to check out what you're doing. And then that Thursday, we're going to debrief about it. We're going to set goals. And then I'm going to check in with you again. So having that consistent relationship and that observation, I think would be amazing for teachers because, you know, getting that feedback from someone in your building who, you know, ideally it'd be an administrator who was a teacher for a long time. Um, So getting that feedback from a peer, essentially, I think that's what grows a teacher's practice. But what about about, um, student performance then? How does that fit in? Because a lot of people argue and it appeals to common sense that, oh, if a person is, you know, they have a X job and they have a clientele, the perceptions of the clientele, the experience of the clientele and their, uh, I guess, success reflects on how well, you know, the person who's serving them did. So Mm -hmm. how, how do you feel about that? Should student performance be used to judge whether or not a teacher is effective? I think looking at are the students growing and are they making progress? I think that's a valuable indicator because not all students are going to start at the same standard, right? And that's like across classrooms, that's across Mm -hmm. school districts, but every student should make progress in classes. And so I think if we're going to take um, student evaluations into consideration, that it needs to be looking at progress and growth and not, did you meet the standard? Because that's not, even as a teacher, of course that's important, but what's important is, are my students making progress, right? Are they growing? That's what we want to see from our students. And I think that's a valuable indicator. Now, how do we determine that growth? That's mm-hmm. a different question. <laughs> right. But you'd vote for a more of a growth-based measure as opposed to a mastery-based measure. That, that's what uh, most people would classify yeah. as a standardized test as, right? It right. It gives you one-time snapshot of what you know or what you, I guess, don't know. Right. Uh, but, a, but a growth measure can be an ongoing thing that tells mm-hmm. you how far from the previous time you have progressed. Yeah. yeah, I think that's valuable. Thank you. So with with that, what are some other frustrations or things that get in the way of teachers' ability to do a great job in classrooms in your experience? Um, I think time is is a problem. Um, I'm sure other teachers have felt this way where you come up with this great project and you get prepped for it and you do it and then you're like, oh, shoot, now I need to grade all of this, right? I need to assess all of this. So having time to thoughtfully assess students, you know, I think would be amazing. And in some schools, you know, I hear about public school colleagues who Uh, They have a different kind of meeting every day, leaving them with just 40 minutes to prep. And honestly, (laughs) that's outrageous. Like, I mean, I just bow down to you all because how do you do it? You know, that's, that's just so unfair to teachers. It's just, that's not enough time to reflect, which is something hardly any teacher has time for, but is so valuable for your practice, let alone to lesson plan and grade and photocopy and hope the photocopier doesn't get jammed while you're waiting in line, right? Like <laughs> all of that stuff. It's yeah. just, oh, it's just like And especially is... when uh, a lot of our colleagues in the work uh, don't have a lot of uh, curriculum materials or resources available to them. Right. So a lot of our colleagues are building, creating stuff from scratch. They're looking yeah. for readings, for example, in an English yeah. class. They're looking and then they're trying to figure out if it's too hard or easy for them. And they're trying right. to change things up to make it accessible for kids. And no, it's And in a 50-minute so block, uh, you can't do it for your four classes. No. Uh, but yeah, you're right. That's, that's, a, that's a reality for a lot of people. I agree. Time is a huge obstacle. And uh, copier is a second obstacle. Yes, definite. Strong second. Strong second. <laughs> um, I, I think also uh, something that gets in the way of teachers is leadership. Like, I, 
I would love to see leaders in every school who are courageous and responsive. So looking at their staff and being responsive to their needs and being courageous in the, in the sense of, you know, pushing teachers to be better and giving them the tools to be better. Um, and maybe in some cases that means that leader needs to, to push back against the district. You know, mm-hmm. if the district is trying to control teachers, you know, having a courageous leader who, who stands against them and supports teachers, truly supports teachers um, and give them what they need. Uh, I, I think that would do a lot, a lot because, you know, not everyone who, you know, is an administrator in a school is set to make miserable lives for their teachers. Right. But I think right. sometimes their hands are tied and they say, Oh, well, we, we have to have these meetings and, I know your time is more valuable doing a million other things, but sorry, we have to do it, you know, but I I just want to see those courageous and responsive leaders in our schools because that's going to help our kids ultimately. Yeah. Salute to all the school leaders out there. I do not envy that job. I know. (laughs) I know. It's so hard. Um, It's so much much pressure, both of students and of Mm -hmm. teachers and Mm -hmm. the families. Uh, Yeah. Tough, tough work. Yeah. Um, yes. Last question on this. Um, what if you could wave a magic wand to strengthen our schools or education in general or teaching or the teaching profession? What would you do with your magic wand? Oh, so many things. So like, <laughs> uh, always a hot pot of coffee, um, like lots of photocopiers. Um, that makes but a really, yeah, it really does. Just the, that well-being. Um, I think I would go back to the teacher preparation and building strong programs where we create as a society teachers who are capable and creative and given the freedom to handle anything that comes their way. And if they meet a challenge, you know, having the resources within their building of other well-educated and well-trained teachers to go to as colleagues um, to get that help and support they need. Um, So I think there's a lot of possible solutions, but starting with a teacher ed program, I think is a, a foundational way to create a positive change in our classrooms. Thank you so much. I have one last segment that is the rapid fire segment. So I'm just going to throw a word or a phrase at you. And the first okay. thing that comes to mind, you should say, you can elaborate on it too, but okay. uh, the idea is that the first thing that comes to your mind, you say when you hear the word or phrase. Ooh, okay. There you go. Yeah. All right. Favorite novel? The History of Love by Nicole Cross. My husband and I fell in love over it, literally, and it just has a special place in my heart. We have the words and yet engraved on our wedding rings, uh, which is from that book because, you know, that phrase and yet, it's like things are so wonderful and yet they will get hard, but also things are dire and yet they will get beautiful, right? So just like embracing that, that wow. life. Yeah. You're such an it's English a, teacher. Uh, it's such a beautiful book. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number two, um, standardized tests. No, boo. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. How about this one? Uh, movies based on books. Movies based on books. I'm not a huge movie watcher. I'm really good at falling asleep on the couch. Um, (laughs) But I will say my five-year-old has just gotten into Harry Potter. He got the first three books, the illustrated version. Um, They are so beautiful. And my husband, who was a creative writing major in college, said, okay, look, he needs to read the books before he watches any of the movies. Um, So we're almost done with the first book. So I'm excited for him to be able to watch Harry Potter. That's awesome. Staff PD. I love it. Mostly because in my school, I run a lot of it. And so I get really excited to come up with, you know, 
um, new tools that I can share with other teachers because like I said, I love talking about teaching. And so when I get the opportunity to do staff PD, I'm all about it. Um, I think it's really important to do staff PD um, within the school, you know, and have other teachers teaching because it's, you know, your colleagues, you get each other, you get the environment of your school and you get who the students are. Um, of course, we've all been to positively terrible PD. Like I always think it's ironic when I go to something run by a teacher and they do all of the terrible things teachers are told <laughs> never to do, yeah. right? Like it's just so ironic. Um, so uh, yes, there's very bad staff PD out there, but I think it holds a lot of potential. Um, and I think it's really important. Cool. Thank you. Five paragraph essay. Um, I tell my students in sixth grade, um, you know, they've had their writing instruction in elementary school. And then I blow their little minds when I'm like, you can write a one word paragraph. And they're <laughs> like, what? I'm like, watch. And then yeah. we look at mentor texts that use one word paragraphs. Look how powerful they are. So I just tell them, you know, obviously you have to have an introduction. You have to have some kind of conclusion. I'm like, and then in the guts, you need to prove your point. So do what you need to do to prove your point. And, you know, I understand having a formula is very good. You have to learn the rules before you break them. But as far as having a hard and fast must be a five paragraph essay, I don't. Because I want their writing to be more meaningful and um, fluid to fit their needs. Authentic, hopefully. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh Substitute teachers. You know, teachers need a break, right? Like the substitute teachers clutch. Um, I used to sub a little bit and it was real hard. So I definitely respect substitute teachers. Um, But you got to have them and you got to have good ones because then teachers will feel more comfortable being like, I need a break. Like for the good of my students, I need a break. And if they know someone solid can step in, then they're able to take that break. So I love them. <laughs> Salute to the subs. Last yes. one. Fiction. Love it. Gotta read it. Have to. It's like breathing. Um, I do a lot of fiction in my class, but then we also have to do a lot of nonfiction, right? So teaching them how to read differently. But yeah, fiction, it's like a warm blanket on a cold night. <laughs> Uh, on that note well thank you so much it's been such a pleasure talking to you and and really really enjoyable thank you so much awesome thank you so much jay this was really fun and that's all for today's episode folks thank you for tuning in turn and talk podcast is your one-stop shop for learning about what is actually happening in schools today directly from the people who are working in today's schools the support for this podcast comes from listeners like yourself people who are interested in the present and the future of education so feel free to head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash turnandtalkpodcast. We invite you to also follow us on Instagram at turnandtalkpodcast. If you haven't subscribed yet, please go ahead and do that too so that all future episodes are available to you upon release and downloaded immediately to your device. If you have questions, thoughts, feedback, or if you work in a school and would like to take the mic back, please email us at turnandtalkpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in. This is your host, Jay McSuits, signing out. Peace.